Romans chapter 3. We're going to try to finish out the third chapter, and it's in verse 9 through 31. Having dealt with the sinfulness of both Gentiles and Jews, but also the fact that the Jews do have uh, some advantage or privilege because they're the guardians of, of the truth. Verse 9, Paul then raises a question that's probably been asked. What then? Are we any better than they? Are Jews any better than Gentiles? Because they have the scripture of God. They have uh, the guardians of what God has revealed. And Paul simply says, not at all. For we have already charged or said that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So having all of this has some advantage, but it doesn't make you better. Having an advantage does not make you better. They were blessed by the grace of God. Being blessed by God's grace does not make us better. The fact that I have been saved by grace does not make me better than someone who has not been saved. I'm not more deserving. I'm not a better person. Um, None of that counts. Just because I have been saved by grace, I have been blessed by God, I am still a sinner. I'm a saved sinner, but I'm a sinner. So all are under sin. Now, verse 10 through 18, he gives examples from the Old Testament of the sinfulness of the Jews. I'm not going to go through all that. And the reason is, this is an illustration. Now, I can go through that verse by verse, go to the Old Testament passages, show you what they mean. But sometimes an illustration is just an illustration. It's important. But, you know, I, I, sometimes someone will take an illustration and they'll, that I give and they'll, they'll, they'll go to town on it and start trying to overanalyze it. And I'm like, it's just an illustration. It just points something out. Now, this is a different type of illustration because it's based on Scripture. But the purpose is simply to demonstrate that the Jews are sinful also in the eyes of God. The critical part of this passage then picks back up in verse 19, which is where we're going to go. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Now, the word law here, uh, normally the word law refers to the, the law that was given to the Jews, in, in, in the most strict sense, it is the law that we see in the Ten Commandments and all that follows. The law also is a way to identify the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah, which means law, the Pentateuch. So sometimes you'll see them, Jesus refer to the law and the prophets. That's a way to refer to the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament is actually divided into three sections it's the law, the prophets, and the writings. They normally don't go in the, they don't normally don't say the law and the prophets and the writings. The word prophet normally covers the writings, but that's their understanding of the Old Testament. Sometimes, though, the word law just refers to all the Old Testament. They just sum it up by that's the law. Uh, you could say that's the covenant. Uh, you could, you know, in the, in the New Testament, sometimes we say the word gospel could mean all the New Testament sometimes, because it's all good news. So it's kind of like is here is he talking about everything. Or is he talking in particular about those first five books, uh, which point out the way of God? And most likely then, to be under the law is to be under the overall authority of God as it is revealed to us in the things that must happen. Remember this, the law of God is not how we become followers of God. The law of God is how followers live their life. So if you were under, if you live your life as a believer, You fall under the law of God. That's the demonstration of how you live your life. It's the same thing in the New Testament when it talks about the law. The reason we keep the Ten Commandments as as Christians is not so that we can be right with God. It's because we are right with God. We have a relationship with God, and we ought to keep the Ten Commandments because that is a reasonable expectation to have people who are under the authority of God live their life. We have only one God. We're not going to kill anybody. We're going to be morally pure. We're going to live our life that way. 
So the same thing. However, because we break the law, one of Paul's biggest arguments is that people who break the law give evidence that they understand the law, and because you break the law, the law condemns you. The law does not save you, but the law can certainly point out your sin and condemn you. And so the law does that. So here's what he says. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that all will be closed and be accountable to God. So the Jews have sinned. They're under the law. They have all broken the law. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul says through the law, the works of the law, keeping the law, you can't be justified. You can't be justified by keeping the law because you can never keep a whole law perfectly. Now, you know, we've talked about the word justified before. We're fixing to come back and talk about some more. But it means to be declared right in the eyes of God. God declares you right or righteous in his sight. Justification, righteousness, same idea. So he says to us what the law does, and the value of the law is it gives us God's expectation, and it shows us that we can't keep God's expectation. The value of the law is it shows me that I cannot live before God righteous on my own ability or my own standards, that I fail. So verse 21 begins a really important part. Some have said that the next few verses are the entire heart and soul of the book of Romans. Now it says this, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest or made known, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So apart from the law, apart from those, what God has given us, the righteousness of God is still known. You don't have to have the law. We already saw that in chapter 1 and 2. You don't have to have the law to know that there's a God and there's a moral expectation. It is witnessed by those, the law and the prophets. So here you have the law and the prophets. The law refers to the first five books, the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. All of that, which is God's revelation, points to the fact that there is knowledge about who God is and what is expected beyond simply the law and the prophets. The book of Psalms does that all the time. The book of Psalms demonstrates what God has done. And we fall under the, you know, the God is creator, and we know that. And so it's constantly there. The fact that in the Old Testament you see the pagan nations worshiping idols is a demonstration that they know there is something, someone that should be worshipped, and they're failing to do that. So all the things we see in the Old Testament, all of what we learn points to God and reminds us that the whole world stands condemned because of sin. So verse 22 says this, Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So, apart from the law, the law and the prophets, they, they, they point out, they give witness to the, to the righteousness of God. Even the righteousness, or including the righteousness of God, that is in faith in Jesus Christ. So the law and the prophets, what do they do? They bear witness to the fact that there is a righteousness that is found in Jesus. I say this all the time. The Old Testament is a book of promise. I was expecting a rounding Answer, and evidently, I say it all the time, you don't know it. And the New Testament is a book of fulfillment. There you go. Old Testament promise, New Testament fulfillment. All of it points to who? Jesus. There you go. And listen, let me just say this again for the 1,000th time in my life. If your understanding of the Old Testament is not that it points to Jesus, you don't understand the Old Testament. Now, I know the Jews don't always believe that. But let me just give you a hint, because I, I, I come across this all the time. Well, you know, the rabbis today, and they look at the Old Testament, and they say this, that, and the other. Since before the coming of Christ, 
If you were to look at what the rabbis and the Jewish scholars taught, most of what they taught about the Old Testament was God were God's people and God was blessing them and a Messiah was going to come and there were certain things to look for in the coming of the Messiah. They all taught that. They didn't all agree upon everything. They taught that. And when the New Testament came, one of the things the New Testament writers keep doing, and Paul in particular in the author of Hebrews, is saying, remember all that stuff you said points to Messiah? Jesus fulfills that. And what did the Jews do? They rejected all of that so that they said Jesus doesn't fulfill the aspects of the Messiah. So here's the thing I want to say. If you reject truth and you don't believe that Jesus fulfills all the expectations of the Messiah, how can I ever trust you when you come to the Old Testament and try to tell me what it says and apply it today? I don't. Because you missed the most important part, Jesus. And just, listen, just because you're Jewish doesn't make you an expert in the Old Testament any more than someone who I don't know is Gentile. Jews don't have, Jewish scholars don't have any extra insight into the Old Testament than do Gentile scholars. Most of them, Gentile and Jew, period, don't have all that much insight. Trust me. I read their stuff all the time. I'm like, yeah, I'm missing something. Here's the thing. You might say, well, you don't either, and you're correct. But here's the thing. The Old Testament points to a righteousness. And the New Testament says that righteousness, that rightness is found in Jesus Christ. For everyone who believes, there is no distinction. All of the believers. If you are a believer, there is no distinction. Doesn't matter where you got your start of the race from. If you started Jewish, you started Gentile, doesn't matter. you got to finish the race in Jesus. So that, now, we quote Romans 3.23 is one of the three or four most quoted verses in all the New Testament. Uh, or maybe, there may not be three or four, but it's in the top ten. And um, we sometimes quote it apart from the context of verse 21 and 22. So he's talking about, in verse 21 and 2, the fact that God has revealed through the law and the prophets that there is a righteousness that comes in Jesus for all who believe. Verse 23 then, in light of the fact that every Jews and Gentiles are all sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. The word all means everyone. Doesn't leave everyone out. The key of the word is the word sin. Now the Greek word for sin, amartia, is, and you hear it all the time, it means to fall short. And uh, what's interesting, what we oftentimes don't do, is the very definition of that Greek word, amartia, or the concept of sin, is found in verse 23. For all the sin and fall short of the glory of God. The phrase, fall short of the glory of God, defines sin. And it does so very well. It could almost read, for all the sin, which means to us, they fall short of the glory of God. They're parallel statements. So the glory of God... Uh, is the manifestation or the making known or the revealing of the holiness of God. Sunday I preached about the holiness of God. You, most of you were here. You heard the message. If you weren't here, didn't hear the message, go back and listen to it online. I'm not going to read to you the whole thing. The holiness of God is the central characteristic of God. We cannot experience God's holiness apart from God revealing that. How does God reveal his holiness to us? This is very important. God reveals his holiness to us through his glory. Glory of God. When you, when most, most of the time, old or new, when you read the glory of God or they say the glory of God or they beheld the glory of God, what it means is they're experiencing the glory of God in some way through the senses. A lot of times it's through sight. Sometimes it's through hearing. It could be through touch. They're experiencing the glory of God. 
So when you see the term, the Shekinah glory of God, the Shekinah means the brilliance of illumination, that's God appearing in a way or revealing himself in some way that you experience the holiness. So the holiness of God is his, is his completeness, his separation into himself, his self-sustaining ability, his eternal ability, the fact that God is in need of nothing or no one, the fact that anything that is flawed or sinful cannot come into the presence of God. So that sin means to fall short of the glory of God. The holiness of God. And all of us fall short of the holiness of God. Because what do I say before? I start this whole series that I have on holiness, I mean, on, on, on God. I began it by saying God is God and we are not. God is God, we are not God. We fall short of that holiness of God. And we can never obtain it. So, for instance, if... Uh, you ever watch a movie and they're running from rooftop to rooftop and there's this long gap and they take this one and start off one rooftop and they jump way to the other roof and sometimes that looks like it's like 40, 45 feet. It's amazing. The world record for the running broad jump, I mean, you run and you jump, you know, horizontal as far as you can, is less than, I think it's still less than 30 feet. If it's not, it's barely over. It's less than 30 feet. It's 10 yards. So that's you know, 18, 18, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, there's, there's 8 right here. So that's less than, that's about 10 yards, maybe a little bit, little bit more. You know, uh, 30 feet. You take a running broad jump, 30 feet. That's all you can go. Well, 8 times 18. Actually, it's a little bit longer. That's to there to there. Okay, so there to there is 10 yards. So, you know, you take that running leap, and that's the fastest and best athletes in the world. And you ever notice that on TV, these old out-of-shape cops run and they jump and they go 40 feet. Now sometimes they're barely hanging on. And, and sometimes they're going downhill because you jump here and it's shorter. So you get a little extra carry. But the law of physics says gravity is eventually only going to let you go so far then it's just going to drop you straight. In reality, if you try to do that, every single one of you will fall short. You will fall short and you will plummet to a certain vicious, violent, cruel death. I just throw that part in there to graphic. <laughs> Sin, no matter how hard you try, you fall short. Let me tell you, you can get a 100-yard running start. You can, you can get as big as running start if you want, and you can even jump a little bit downhill. But you're not jumping 45 feet across anything. I mean, you can drop from one mountain to the next, you know, and it can be a 400-foot a, a drop. At some point, gravity just brings you down. Now, there are some of you who are involved in physics. You could probably give me the exact number, and I'm sure you would love to do that. And you can. Just email Joe and let him know what that is. <laughs> Joe Andrews, campus pastor, if you don't know who that is. And so you can just do that. So we all fall short. And no matter what you do, you fall short of the glory of God. So for all sin to fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ. So you believe, for all who believe there's no distinction, for they're all sin, and you're justified, or you're declared right as a gift by his grace. Now, so to be justified, it's not something that I can achieve on my own. It is something that is a gift of the grace of God. And the word gift, God, is, and the grace is in itself a gift. It is a gift of gifts. I mean, it is an act of only God. Being justified is only an act of God. The reason faith will help you for all of for, you know all of sin, but the Bible says, "For by grace are we saved through faith." We're saved through faith, but in that process, faith is still something God gives to us. We are not justified 
by our faith in and of itself of what we provide, we are justified by what God does when we come to him in faith. And to be justified is to be declared right. Justification isn't even about being made right. Sanctification makes us right on an ongoing basis. Justification means this. You're a sinner. And that sin didn't leave you except that God in Christ forgave you. It does. Someone once said, justification is just as if I'd never sinned. No, 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 no. You sinned. But in Christ, that sin is forgiven or removed. And God then declares, as a judge, you are right or righteous. You did not all of a sudden be transformed as one who is righteous. You are declared righteous. And once you're declared righteous, then you live a life in Christ of transformation unto righteousness or to be morally right with God. It was through then the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. The redemption is an economic term. Uh, I'm going to gather that most of the people under the age of 40 do not know what stamps are, right? S&H cream stamps or yellow stamps or what it means to redeem. Remember when you used to go to the service station and they would give you stamps? And then you would go to the redemption center and you turn the stamps in. You collected so many stamps and you could go. We, we bought, my mom bought some really cool stuff on stamps. Uh, today, well, I'll leave it with that. So, to redeem is to purchase back. So God has redeemed us. Now, some people struggle because the idea of redemption means, well, who did God pay the price for? Well, that's not the issue. It's not about who, is, it's not about who received the redemption, who, who the redemption was paid to. The scripture doesn't deal with that. That's not the issue. It's who was redeemed and what was the price. We're redeemed. We're brought back from sin. What's the price? Jesus paid the price. The Redeemer is Jesus. So we sing the song, you know, about our Redeemer. You know, and we sing songs about redemption. And a lot of people don't understand that, especially the younger generation. It means to be purchased and bought back. And so we're justified because we have been redeemed. And those are just big, fancy biblical terms we don't use a lot. But what it means is God declares us right because Christ has paid the price for our sin. And notice what verse says in verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So, these few verses have some of the deepest doctrinal stuff you'll find in terms of word. We have justification, we have redemption, and now we have the word propitiation. So I'm going to talk to you a few moments about what propitiation is because it's important. Some, do any of your versions have the word expiation in verse 25? Okay, good. That means you have a good translation. The word propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of God. It's just what it means. To placate or to appease is what the word means. And with God, it's always used in terms of his wrath. Now, people have a hard time with that because we think, my gosh, what is this God? You know, sometimes the word moral monster, the phrase moral monster is used of God. We have to placate, we have to pacify, appease his anger and his wrath. Well, you understand wrath wrong and you understand what it means to appease or to deal with the wrath of God. God is holy. Remember I said last week, holy always consumes the unholy. 
And that which is unholy, that's us, cannot come into the presence of God. Wrath is God's patient, divine response to our sin. God is very patient. Wrath, we think of wrath as humans, and I've said this before, we think of a jealous rage, you know, maybe just foaming at the mouth, anger. The wrath of God isn't that kind of anger. In fact, the wrath of God is part of the love of God because God loves us. When we sin, we have to deal with the consequences of sin. As a parent, I always loved my daughter. Sometimes my daughter did things that required my wrath. Not my absolute anger, but my dealing with her. What she did was wrong. She broke a rule. And because she broke a rule, she had to deal with the consequences of that rule. That is wrath, dealing with the consequences. So the idea of propitiation is somehow you have to deal with the consequences of what we've done in the eyes of God. The word expiation means to deal with guilt. And so some, trend, and there's, there are places in Scripture that talk about the word expiation. The word expiation means to deal with the guilt. In other words, I'm guilty of sin, so Christ took away the guilt. There is truth to that, but that's not what's being said here. This is not being said that God, Christ took away the guilt of my sin. It's being said that in order for me to be declared righteous by God, which is a legal term, and for the process of redemption to occur, there had to be an appeasement. There had to be a sense of satisfying the wrath of God. Now, Jesus did that. I didn't do that. Jesus did it. Not a wild, crazy God who has this unrealistic anger. It is to deal with the fact that there are consequences to my sin. Listen, if you go out and commit a crime, and commit a serious crime, and you're found guilty, you've got to pay for that crime. It's expected. We all understand that. Sin is to fall short of the glory of God. It's to fall short of the holiness of God. God can't, by by the nature of his holiness, God can't let us into his presence because we're sinners. We can't come into the presence of God. God wants us to come into his presence. It's his will that none should perish, but all come to repentance. How is God going to do that? Because we can't. Only God can. Is God just going to ignore our sin? No, he can't. His holiness will not let him ignore our sin. That's what wrath is. God in his holy wrath cannot ignore our sin. So he sent Christ, who is God in the flesh, to pay the price for our sin. That is propitiation. It's important. You and I can't be right with God without it. So I know sometimes people get upset. And what I ultimately tell people who want to get upset with God over that is, one day you can explain that to him. Tell God he's wrong. Good luck. Now that may seem like a sarcastic kind of thing, and it is, because I've been known to be sarcastic once or twice. But at some point, you've got to quit trying to put God in our box that we define and take it at face value. Don't let your sin and your sinful view of life cloud your understanding of God. In a word like wrath, when you're wrathful and God is wrathful, it ain't the same thing because you ain't God. And to bring God's wrath down to your wrath is to take holy God and to make him calm. Just preach the whole message about that. So that this was to demonstrate his righteousness. God was demonstrating he was righteous by taking care of the sin price.
Because in his forbearance, in his patience, God passed over sins previously committed. So you go back to the Old Testament, all their sins. How were they all saved? Well, God had in his forbearance those who had faith, which you see in the book of Hebrews. He had passed over, not ignored, not forgot about. He'd left hanging for a while. Passed over. It's going to come back to him. Their sins. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be, ju- be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in other words, Moses sinned. God knew Moses had faith. He passed over that sin. Then when Christ came, God took the price Christ paid, and because Moses was a person of faith, he let Christ as propitiation pay the price for Moses' sin so that he could declare Moses righteous. In doing that, God showed him just, himself to be just. God showed that he was just and that he's the justifier. So how do people in the Old Testament times get saved before Christ? Well, God saved them on the basis of faith. Moses, David, all the people in Hebrews chapter 11, because he passed over their sin until Christ came and paid for it. And then Christ's payment, we might say, was a retroactive redemption. Now understand, God does not deal with time like we do. Time is a limitation for us, not for God. So in the eyes of God, time isn't the issue. See, to us, it's a time factor. Well, you know, God went back all those thousands of years. No, God didn't go back all those thousands of years. God doesn't think that way. God let their sin be passed over until Christ paid the price. And then God, in his holiness, took that propitiation and applied it to those Old Testament saints, or whoever, whoever it was in the Old Testament times. Their faith in him was rewarded and, was paid, and took care of their sin. That's how it's dealt with. Do I understand it? No, I don't understand all that. I don't, I mean, I, I understand it. I still have in my mind some gaps in there. Okay, God, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to connect A to Z and there's a few letters missing. It's all right. I accept it. Sometimes, this is what I do. Sometimes I just let God do what God wants to do, and I'm satisfied even if I can't fully grasp it. Listen, I am a very logical guy, and I am a guy that likes everything to be spelled out very carefully. I have learned that I can't take my dictates and my template of what ought to happen and place it on God. God doesn't work that way. So God, sometimes I just have to say, I don't fully get all that. And God says, you don't have to get it. You just need to believe it. I'm like, okay, I'll believe it. How am I going to explain it to those people that don't buy it? He says, you don't have to explain it so that they understand it. You explain it the way I revealed it, I'll take care of the rest. Just like I do with you. I said, okay. Some of those people aren't as sharp as me. God, how's that going to work? You know? He said, don't worry about it. You're not as sharp as you think. So it all works out. I've said this before. I know guys who have all the answers. And they explain it and they, you know, they have all the answers. And I'm saying, yeah, you have all the answers to the questions you're asking, but you don't have all the answers to the question I ask. And sometimes I just got to let God have all the answers. So all this works. I get it. I understand it. Maybe a few things I wish I more clarification on. But I think it's pretty clear what God does. It's hard for me at some points yeah, it's hard. Because I still think of wrath as the way that I have it. Okay. 
kind of whip through these verses. Where is then his boasting? It's excluded. But what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by a law of faith. All your boasting in the law, all your boasting in the works is excluded because everything happens by faith. No, by the way, faith is what God gives you. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That is correct. You are, what he's saying in Romans 1.17, the just will live by faith. You are made right, you are declared right, I should say, by God based on faith, not by any of the law. Is God only a God of the Jews? Nope. He's a God of the Gentiles. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith is one. Gentiles, uncircumcised, Jews, circumcised, all of them get judged by God on the basis of faith. So he said, do we nullify the law through faith? No, he says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. The law has value. The law tells us how we ought to live. But the law can't save you. Figure that out, he says. Not going to do away with the law. If you do away with the law, then Paul, some accuse Paul of guilty of antinomianism. So what that means is, nomianism is the law and anti is against the law. Some accuse Paul of being anti-law. Paul says, no, I'm in favor of the law. I'm just in favor of the law being done right. What the purpose of the law is, show you how to live your life. So keep those Ten Commandments. But understand, they ain't going to save you. Thankfully, because none of you keep them. Probably each of you broke at least one commandment today. And, you know, I'm just saying that because we just are sinful people. Jesus said, love God, love others. If at any point today you fail to love God or love other people purely and perfectly, you have a problem. So the law can never save us. Christ saves us by the faith that we have in him. Faith is not a work. I don't drum up faith. I don't chin up my faith. I don't say, I don't reach down into that reservoir of faith I have and get that faith just to come up. I have faith. God has given me that faith. I have claimed that faith. I have taken that faith. I have exercised that faith. None of that is a work. None of that is me doing anything. It is me responding to God. And so in doing that, By having faith that God has given me, he says, David, I'm going to declare you to be right in my sight because you have believed in Jesus. And because you have believed in Jesus, you have been redeemed and the price of your sin has been paid for. And you're saved. And I say, thank you. And then I move on. Questions you may have. I cover a lot of heavy stuff in a short period of time. I realize that. Yes, ma'am. Okay, you said several times that God provides grace and God provides the faith. Yes, ma'am. And not, I've lived 70 years, and I always thought that I came up with the faith until you made that statement about two weeks ago, and I'm just like, and then tonight you're saying, come to him in faith. Yes. So it sounds like this is, the route that I follow to God. Okay. Come. Yes. That it's active. It's my Come by faith is active, yes. Right. If I don't get up and take the first step, if I don't step forward, if I don't make my, if I don't, at some point there has to, and you said also and connected it, response 
to God is coming to Him in faith. Yes, responding to God is coming to Him to faith, correct. That's right. But at some point, and I'm just trying to put this together. At some point, you have to do something. That's right. So at some point, faith requires you to do something. Yes. Yes. But faith isn't something that I do. It's correct. But it is. Faith is not something you do. Faith is something God gives you and you respond to. And so it actually is the manifestation of the faith that God has given to you. Let me give you an example. I just what you're saying, Hobie. In Ephesians it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift of God. The word gift it covers both grace and faith. The word gift comes, is a word in the, in the Greek language, the way it is written. The, ver, the, the, the noun tense of gift is a, is a noun tense that covers both faith and grace. So that means both come from God. It has to be that way semantically. It has to be that way linguistically. It has to be that way grammatically. So faith and grace are both gifts. So let me ask you this. If I go to the store and I, of my own accord, buy you a gift and I wrap it up, and I put that gift, and I bring it to Carol and said, here is a gift. It's yours. Take it. And you take that gift. You can open that gift or not open that gift. That gift, I gave it to you. But the only way you benefit from that gift is if you open the gift up. Did you do anything for that gift? No. Is, is opening the gift an action? Yes. But is, are you the one responsible for that? No, I am. Everything about it, I'm responsible for. You either enjoy the gift or you don't enjoy the gift. You still have to open the gift. Faith still is trusting God. But the ability to trust God comes from God. Now, we have the freedom in our life to rebel against God. Some people choose to live their life in total rebellion. You and I have chosen to live our life by faith. But faith doesn't qualify as a work. So when you say, I have to take that first step, you're not taking, you know, you, you, you just, is, just be careful that you don't think that step is something you generate. Let me give you an example. If you're lost in the jungle and you can't get out and you're chained to a tree, somebody comes and plows out a path and unlocks the chain, if you start walking down the path, that is the normal reaction. If you choose to not, not walk down the path, that's an abnormal thing to do. But everything about you being freed from that tree, unlocking the unlocking the chains, plowing out a path for you to walk. Somebody else did it. And then you're traveling a path, and you're traveling on faith because you don't know where that path leads you, but you're taking that path. It's hard for us in a Western mind sometimes to understand things that were written in an Eastern culture because we are very scientific. In our logical way, faith is something we do. So I take that step of faith. I generated it physically a step. But we're talking about a spiritual proposition. And the faith that you have is given to you by God. Yes, you're responsible for receiving that faith and exercising that faith. But it's still a gift. So none of that came from you. So when the old preacher says, God supplies the grace and I supplied the faith, that I heard that a thousand times, they said it was wrong. God supplied the grace. God supplied the faith. I respond in faith. I'm still accountable. I have to respond, just like I have to take that gift someone gave me and open it in order to enjoy it. Does that help? Yes.
Yes. And yes. So, does God give us the works? Okay. James and Paul are talking about things from two different perspectives. Paul talks about faith and works before you're saved. James talks about faith and works after you're saved. So, Paul says, and, and faith without works, works cannot save you, faith is an act of God. James says, and Paul also says this differently, your faith is demonstrated by your works. So your works are the evidence of your faith. In Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then he says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand. So we're created and saved in faith, but created then to do the works. So Paul says works follow faith. James says works follow faith. They're the evidence of faith. So I say this all the time too. If you don't give evidence that you have, uh, have faith by the way you live your life, you're probably not saved. And Paul agrees with that. James is talking about what happens after faith, Paul, uh, salvation. Paul is talking about what happens before salvation. Does that help? Anyone else? Well, I'll see you again later.